0: Welcome to Bunker Global, your weekly world tour of news and politics in the parts of the planet that aren't Europe or America. Here in the Bunker, I'm Andrew Harrison. On this week's edition, the pain in Spain falls mainly on the far-right party, Vox. The extreme anti-feminist, anti-LGBTQ, climate-denying populists were expected to make big gains in Spain's general election and play a kingmaker role in government. Instead, they lost seats and vote share, and there's now a hung parliament, Has one front on the global populist march just been halted? Madrid-based journalist Guy Hedgeco will be telling us what it all means. On the Ukraine war, Wagner's coup against Vladimir Putin failed. So what are its troops doing in Belarus? And could they really be planning to invade Poland? And you'll never believe this. Elon Musk isn't paying the severance he owes to Twitter Africa staff he laid off in November. And they're suing. Does big tech need to start showing a bit more respect for what's projected to be the world's fastest growing continental economy? To help me out, I'll be joined later by Dipo Foloyan, Senior Editor of Global News Advice and author of the acclaimed book, Africa is Not a Country. All that on this week's edition of the Bunker Global. Pollsters and pundits were confounded on Sunday when the Spanish general election went off script. Instead of the expected triumphant run for the far-right Vox party, which was supposed to enter a coalition as minority partner to the Conservative People's Party... Vox had a shocker, losing 19 seats. And the Spanish Socialist Workers' Party, or PSOE, which was expected to do badly, won two more seats than previously. Along with the new left-wing Sumar coalition, the Spanish left now has 153 seats in Spain's hung parliament. So what's going on and what should we take from it? Guy Hedgeco is a freelance journalist who's been based in Madrid since 2003. He covers Spain for the BBC, the Irish Times and Politico, and I spoke to him earlier. Guy, how big a surprise was Vox's underperformance in the general election? Why did they fail? It was
2: a big surprise. The polls were suggesting that the right was going to win overall, that the, the Conservatives were going to win, and that it was very likely that Vox was going to perform well enough to be able to provide a majority for the parties on the right to be able to govern. And the fact that they they lost so many seats compared to 2019, and also the fact that they performed so poorly so soon after local elections at the end of May, when they really performed very well. So all of that added up to a big shock, really. Now, when it comes to why they performed so poorly, I think the jury's still out. The leader of Mm. of VOX, Santiago Abascal, seemed quite clear on on one of the main reasons. He said there was too much complacency during the election campaign itself. He said that the, the conservatives to his left if you like, had been much too complacent, had been sort of behaving as if they were already in government, sort of talking about, you know, handing out ministries and so on during the campaign. He used this sort of rather immortal phrase, the People's Party, the Conservatives, had sold the bear's skin before they'd even hunted the bear, which is a very sort of Vox-type phrase. (laughs) But to say that... Um, Basically, they seem to be behaving, the Conservatives, as if they'd already won um, and that it was already in the bag. Now, I think that may have been a a factor here in that there may have been a lot of Vox voters who perhaps believe that and therefore maybe didn't turn out to vote. Because, you know, you take into account the fact that this election took place in the middle of summer. It was very unusual as a result, there were two and a half million postal votes, so it was unusual in that sense. So I think there was probably a, a temptation for many people not to vote at all. And on the right, if they were expecting to win easily, that may have provided a lot of people with a sort of an excuse not to turn out to vote.
0: A lot of us in this country have just seen the headlines and gone, "Oh, a wonderful a repudiation of far right politics in Spain." And from what you're saying, that doesn't actually seem to be the case.
2: Well, no. And again, you you look at the result from the local elections in May, you know, Vox performed very well. So just two months ago, we were talking about how Vox seemed to be on the rise. I think, you know, this election is not so much about massive swings to the left or swings to the right in terms of Spaniards. I think a lot of it is to do with who turned out, who was mobilized, who Mm -hmm. performed better in the campaign. The campaign itself is just two weeks long. Um, I think a lot of it was about that and about those sort of small margins and the right perhaps got some of those margins wrong and that explains the result but i don't think it was a a big sort of sociological swing one way or the other i think that the reasons behind it are subtler than that
0: fox are avowedly against uh, any liberalized laws on abortion lgbtq plus rights gender equality laws against preventing violence against women can you tell us a bit more about what they stand for and how they fit into the spanish political landscape
2: well I mean, it'd been around around a decade, and for a while they really were just a sort of footnote in Spanish politics. And it was with the explosion of the Catalan territorial issue around 2017 when the, the northeastern region of Catalonia tried to break away from Spain. It failed, but it sort of opened up this whole crisis, a kind of constitutional crisis in Spain. And unusually for a far-right party in Europe, the main platform for Vox's popularity, what drove their popularity around that time, it wasn't so much talking about immigration or those sort of issues. It really was about the territorial issue. And this is very specific Mm. to Spain. Many Spaniards, particularly on the right, felt that they were being threatened um, by the the Catalan independence movement. And Vox was the, the most vocal, the most strident, the most aggressive unionist party out there, much more aggressive than the Conservatives at the time. And that drove their popularity a lot. Having said that, the other issues like immigration, they have a, a very tough stance on that. You know, they've been talking during this election campaign about uh, they want to, to introduce a naval blockade around the Spanish coastline to stop boats arriving with immigrants from North and West Africa. You know, they make those sort of proposals which maybe are not very realistic, but you associate those with the far right. Specifically, I think you could say they're islamophobic. They talk about immigration in terms of we don't want immigrants to come from certain countries. And they often talk about Moroccans, other countries in, in North Africa and countries in the Middle East and so on. They seem very keen not to have migrants from those countries in particular, as opposed to Latin American immigrants, who they seem sort of marginally more welcoming to, if that's the word you, you could use. But also they take a, a very tough line on certain sort of issues. in the the culture war, which in Spain is being fought very fiercely. For example, the feminist issue, um, they push back very fiercely on the left-wing government's feminist agenda in terms of introducing legislation on gender equality and also a reform on transgender rights as well. Those issues have also driven its popularity. So it's kind of a blend of what you would see as a classic far-right European party, but with some other very Spanish issues thrown in as well. And they do have this very nostalgic um, kind of idea of, you know, making Spain great again. It's something that they have said. And they have used that phrase, you know, that Trumpian phrase. And I mean, a lot of people would say that what they're harking back to is a past that never existed. But nonetheless, they do have this slightly nostalgic idea of Spain.
0: When you hear far right and Spain, you know, inevitably you start to think, is there an element of kind of fascism in this? Would I be engaging in stereotyping to think in in those terms?
2: Well, I mean, you know, the obvious thing is to link them with uh, the dictatorship of Francisco Franco. And they have a slightly complex relationship with the Franco regime, because on the one hand, a lot of their leadership seems to distance itself from that and say, you know, no, this is a new right, but this is not about the Franco regime. And they seem slightly uncomfortable with that. I think particularly for, for the international audience, they're slightly concerned about that. But at the same time, some of their members of Congress will put out tweets that seem, you know, really quite sympathetic to the Franco regime or to fascism, as you put it, you know. Often what you see is in terms of their position on a lot of issues, sometimes what they're saying officially in Congress or, or wherever else, that's a little bit softer than what you hear from their what their politicians are saying on social media, which, which could often come across as really quite shocking about women's rights, about immigrants, about issues of race. And you know, you look at some of those tweets, you think, well, okay, this is a, a clearly a far right fascist party. But if you put that to them, they roundly reject it. But obviously, in Spain. When you talk about the far right, there's going to be a sort of an automatic link, um, subconscious link, if nothing else, to uh, the regime of Franco.
0: Spain now has a hung parliament.
2: What happens next? Well, what happens next is the new parliament takes office in the middle of August. So the new MPs have been voted in. They're sworn in into office. And then King Felipe is supposed to do a round of contacts with the leaders of the different parties. And at the end of that, he invites the leader of one of those parties to try and form a government now in theory that should be the party that won the election so that would be the conservative people's party however it doesn't look possible for the conservative people's party to form a government so that may just simply be a you know a, a kind of protocol that they go through but with no result and then after that in theory if that investiture vote for the the conservatives fails The king would then invite the next party, which would be the socialists of Pedro Sanchez, the current prime minister, to try and form a government. And then he would make an attempt at an investiture vote. Now, we don't know what the result of that would be yet, but the clock will then start ticking. If neither of those parties can form a government, then we start looking at the likelihood, well, the certainty of a repeat election, which would probably take place at the end of this year, or if not, at the beginning of 2024.
0: We're always calling false dawns on the end of populism on this podcast. Would we be uh, over-optimistic to imagine that populism is in retreat in Spain?
2: Yes, I think so. The margins are so tight in Spanish politics. For the last decade, really, the balance between left and right has been on the knife edge. In 2015, we had a similar situation to this, an inconclusive election. So there was a repeat election a few months later. In 2019, there was an inconclusive election. There was a repeat election a few months later. We're seeing it again. Now, the Spanish political landscape is extremely fragmented. It's had all these new parties appear over the last few years. There was Podemos on the on the left. There was Ciudadanos on the right, which has now disappeared. There's Vox, which has suddenly come to the fore. There's now a new left-wing platform, Sumar, which has absorbed Podemos, if you like. So Spanish politics, in that sense, has been kind of in, in flux over the last 10 years. But what hasn't been in flux is this very fine balance between left and right. That really hasn't changed. And so I think it is premature to say that, ah, right, the far right are out of the picture, because they performed very well in local elections just a couple of months ago. They performed very poorly in a general election just a few days ago. But who's to say what will happen if there's a repeat election, if they can get their act together and their electorate can turn out? I think that a lot of this is about mobilisation. And that the key here was probably that the left was more mobilized than the right in this election. Guy Hedgecock, thanks very much. That's fascinating. That's a pleasure.
0: Thousands of mercenaries from Wagner, the Russian private army held responsible for atrocities in Ukraine, have arrived in Belarus following their leader's failed coup against Vladimir Putin. And nobody knows what they're planning except, perhaps, for Belarusian dictator Alexander Lukashenko, who told Putin at the weekend that Wagner troops were stressing him out by calling for an excursion into Poland. They're asking to go west to go on a trip to Warsaw, Lukashenko reportedly told Putin over the weekend. But, of course, I am keeping them in central Belarus, like we agreed. A Russian invasion of Poland seems absolutely unlikely, what is really going on? Joining me now is Bunker Global regular Depot Faloian. Hi, Depot. Hi, how's it going? Not bad. So, according to the activist group Belaruski Hajun, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, which tracks troop movements across Belarus, there are between 3,400 and 3,600 Wagner soldiers close to the Polish border. What do we know about this? What do we know about the deal between Putin and the Wagner leader, Yevgeny Prigozhin?
1: Well, we don't know too much at the moment, but what we do know is that whatever deal they came up with runs through. Belarus's dictator Lukashenko who has sort of been appointed as a type of babysitter for Wagner and the mercenaries and Prigozhin himself as a leader of this group you know while uh, Prigozhin and Putin sort of settle their differences it seems like Lukashenko has sort of been asked to to keep an eye on this mercenary group and it's starting to frustrate Lukashenko himself who is now sort of complaining to Putin that these kids are not Eating their vegetables and going to bed on time, and oh, it seems like they're threatening World War Three as well. Hmm. Um, and so that that seems to be it. Seems to be sort of uncertain as to what Lukashenko personally is getting from this role that he's now adopted. But it's incredibly confusing.
0: Yeah, I mean, is this idea of a of Wagner attack on Poland as fanciful as it seems? In Poland is a NATO member, an attack by anyone would activate Article Five, mutual defense, the raison d'être of NATO.
1: To put it mildly, it would be incredibly stupid um, for a group of about sort of 5,000 to maybe 10,000 mercenaries at best invading a NATO country. The threat seems to come from... Wagner and Pogosian wanting to show the world that they are in fact still operating. Many people expected Pogosian to accidentally fall out of a window at some point since the coup started. And he has been on this sort of counter messaging offensive saying, no, we're still here. We're still strong. Um, And in fact, we, we could maybe one day invade a NATO member. And Lukashenko is right to be worried about that because should that happen and should it come from Belarus, then Belarus would themselves be dragged into a war against NATO. Um, and that's not really something that he signed up for.
0: Yeah, and Lukashenko's own position in Paris is nowhere near as secure as, as Putin's. Like, he wouldn't particularly enjoy, I would have thought, having 3,500 battle-hardened mercenaries in a private army run by a chef-caterer who likes killing people with a sledgehammer yeah. on his doorstep.
1: <laughs> no, it's not ideal. Um, Lukashenko's entire hold on power really is based on with Putin. Putin has said that, you know, anyone who attacks Belarus is essentially attacking Russia, which is why, you know, Lukashenko is happy to help Putin wherever he can. Right now, Lukashenko is sort of saying, well, you know, this this deal doesn't seem to be working that well for me, considering these mercenaries are now threatening uh, war against NATO from my own country here. Um, That doesn't seem to protect my interests as a dictator who just wants to stay in power for as long as possible. So this is a a game of of chess that no one fully understands at this point. Um, But, you know, for for three men, Prigozhin, Putin, and Lukashenko, who want to show power, uh, they're sort of jostling between themselves for this great show of manly strength.
0: So it's a game of chess with three men aboard No. Nobody knows how big it is and nobody knows what the pieces do that's a hell of a game of chess um a fanciful or far-fetched though it seems what is poland doing about this they're
1: doing what you'd expect they would do they are making moves to protect themselves. They're sending troops to the border. They are making it clear that, you know, they won't take this threat lightly. They are speaking with other NATO members to, you know, put them on alert as to what's happening at their border. So they're going to, they're going to strengthen themselves. They're going to do what any leader would do and and make moves to protect their people in, you know, regardless of whether they understand this game of chess or not, they're not going to take any risks. You know, many people thought that there was no way that Russia would invade Ukraine. And, you know, obviously that happened. And So, you know, even though experts believe it would be incredibly foolish for Wagner supported by Belarus to invade a NATO member, uh, Poland aren't going to take any chances.
0: As you said, Putin is going to deem any aggression towards Belarus by Poland or anyone else as an attack on Russia. But your mind tends to go to the idea that this is kind of classic Putinism, threaten Poland, Mm. Poland then shores up its defenses. Putin calls that an aggressive move.
1: Yeah. And so it, it depends whether Putin will, will lean towards just the narrative of, you know, look at look at me, I'm constantly being threatened by NATO members, which justifies my continued war in Ukraine, or whether Putin decides that, you know, that is enough uh, for him to try and expand this mission. If the war was going better for Putin in Russia than you, in Ukraine, then you'd imagine that, you know, he'd be looking towards expansion. But right now it doesn't seem like. He has um, enough uh, sort of support uh, across, you know, his traditional allies to expand right now. He's just trying to not lose ground in Ukraine at the moment. But I think that it's certainly narrative wise will be used by Putin to say that, you know, NATO really are the aggressors and I had no choice but to invade Ukraine.
0: Stories also began to emerge this week that uh, when the Wagner Rebellion took place, Putin was actually paralyzed and indecisive and issued no orders for a complete day. The Washington Post quotes a European security official saying, Putin had time to take the decision to liquidate the rebellion and arrest the organizers. Then when it began to happen, there was paralysis on all levels, was absolute dismay and confusion. For a long time, they did not know how to react. Um Obviously, it's very difficult to get an accurate picture of what's happening inside Russia. Mm. But the fact that Prigozhin is still alive yeah. and Belarus uh, has, has provided a haven for Wagner, do we have any idea what this has done to Putin's own the security of his position and the the stability of his rule?
1: Prigozhin walking around, giving interviews, claiming that he's as powerful as ever, certainly embarrassing for Putin, um, you know, traditionally people have mysteriously fallen out of hotel windows for a lot less than what Mm. Prigozhin has done. And so it does support the narrative that Putin was very much blindsided by Wagner's moves and their attempts to, at the very least, try and sort of take over full military operations across Russia. Um, It has certainly weakened Putin, this agreement that he's had to make with Wagner's not ideal for him, Um, but you know it's still at this point not clear whether vengeance is still to come later down the line, or whether Putin's just going to have to realise that he's not as strong as he once was, and he just has to make the sort of agreements that you have to make when you're quickly running out of any allies
0: around the world. Evidence also emerged this week of the UK Foreign Affairs Select Committee, which reported that for nearly 10 years, the British government has underplayed and underestimated the Wagner Network's activities. We allowed Wagner to establish itself and gain footholds across Africa in particular, and in many vulnerable countries. And we're still only sanctioning about half as many members of the Wagner group as the US and the EU are. We haven't even prescribed Wagner as a group, which was astonishing to me, Mm -hmm. the idea that this is uh, not a prescribed group in in the UK. Has Britain been asleep at the wheel when it came to Wagner?
1: Yes and no. Uh... The inability to fully recognize them as a group and the activities that they were carrying out uh, across the world, and especially in some African countries, is something that just wasn't a priority for the British government for a very long time. Um, The challenge that the UK government has is they don't want to meddle too much in the affairs of certain African countries. So what we're seeing across the the strongholds that that Wagner have managed to achieve in Africa are in regions that were former French colonies now France have always maintain close relationships with their former colonies. They sort of see these countries as an extension of France itself, which has frustrated many of the governments, many of the people on the ground who have actively wanted to push France out and want to say, look, you know, we are, yes, a former French colony, but you do not still run us. And so that has seen many governments kind of turn towards uh, Russia and turn towards Wagner um, as a way of saying, you know, stop meddling in our business or else we'll go elsewhere. Now say what you want about the former British... Colonial empire, and you know, I've certainly said a lot about it. But one slightly positive thing, if you can call it positive, is that when they left, they really did leave. They they left alone and didn't didn't bother to uh, interfere. And so they've sort of tried this uh, distant approach. um, And if they there sort of are concerns if they were to meddle too much, that that could possibly sort of. Push uh, their former colonies into the hands of other nations who would say, you know, you know, we will give you the same support without caring what you do within your country, and so it's a bit of a, a sort of a catch twenty two situation. Um, but certainly, uh, there's more that the British government can do to, to cut off some of the financing that Wagner has relied on. <laughs>
0: Finally, this will amaze you, but it turns out that Elon Musk doesn't want to pay former employees what he owes them. CNN Business reports that ex-staffers at Twitter Africa, which is based in Accra in Ghana, have not received any of their agreed severance pay, more than seven months since Musk let them go. They say they reluctantly agreed to 3 months severance pay plus the cost of repatriating foreign staff and their legal expenses, even though that was less than what colleagues elsewhere received. And then Twitter ghosted them. They're now taking legal action. Twitter and Musk already face multiple lawsuits for non-payment of severance elsewhere in the world. Deepo, what do you make of this? Are you in any way surprised? I'm, I'm
1: shocked. Absolutely shocked. stunned, st- stunned <laughs> that uh, Elon Musk has gone back on his word um, in a week that uh, we found out that the Twitter user who had the at X handle... Um, has just had that handle taken off of him um, without any any pay. I think he was offered some Twitter T-shirts or something in exchange. Well,
0: T-shirts with the old logo that nobody with wants? Logo, yeah, it, exactly. Don't um, they just like usually go to the charity shop.
1: Yeah. <laughs> and so, yeah, this has been the way Elon Musk has operated since taking over Twitter. He has done what he wants without caring about the repercussions, about uh, the sort of the lives and livelihoods of many of his former staff. And, you know, it's not surprising that he, he has looked towards uh, uh, Africa and and its operations there and decided that you know they're not worthy of being considered for proper severance pay and so this really fits with the way Twitter has been run since musk's
0: takeover uh, I know that um Africa's not a country. Somebody wrote about right. that at some point I've heard like
1: rumors there. about that, Great, yeah.
0: rigging phrase. How big is Twitter in Africa? How big is, you know, microblogging social media?
1: It's interesting. It's certainly growing. Um, Facebook has sort of the biggest usage across the continent. I think most of the users are in North Africa, about 8 million users there, about 6 million across West Africa, and similar in, in, in Southern and East Africa, but... Twitter has really been useful for specific moments. So, you know, the NSARS protests, for example, in Nigeria, a lot of that was organized through Twitter and through social media. And so it it does have the ability in in moments to to really be used to kind of build coalitions and and to get young people on the same issue. So it, it's certainly growing, and there was certainly a lot more room for it to grow and for it to have an ability being on the ground to work with local governments who were potentially reticent about the use of Twitter in their countries.
0: The Twitter Africa office had opened just a few days before Musk took over the company and commenced firing loads of people. It seems a bit odd to have one office for the whole of Africa, for the whole of a continent.
1: Yeah, really, really strange. Um, and it was a, an oversight from you know the previous Twitter administration. And uh, Jack Dorsey had had made attempts to try and rectify that. He he went on a tour uh, across the continent, uh, visited Ghana and Nigeria and a few other places. So it was something that they had noticed that you know this this oversight of of, of a continent of fifty four countries and one point four billion people. Um, the average. age age, under 30 years old, uh, to, to not have a bigger presence on the continent was, was a really, really strange oversight and and you know something that at least they had started trying to, to rectify. But it seems that, that that's been killed.
0: At the basic level, it just seems like a huge business opportunity, particularly with Africa being... You know, one of the few things I do know about this is that Africa is heavily mobile. Yeah, that, exactly. You know, this is, and actually, weirdly, Musk is kind of quite connected to that with his Skynet sort of orbiting internet stuff. Um, I found out this quote from Open Democracy, which said that uh, Africa has much lower internet and Twitter usage than other continents, but users are more exposed to technology-related affronts, which go against the premise of free, fair, and open internet. That's according to Juliet Nanfuka, who's an expert in Eastern Southern Africa communications. The idea that while usage is heavily biased towards Facebook and Twitter is a growing thing, but Repressive moves across the internet, the policing of content, the using of content to track and punish people, is much more prevalent across you know African countries with with political instability. Can you tell us a bit more about that?
1: Yes, I mean what you have is you have these. Incredibly young populations, and in many cases, you have leaders who are not young. They are quite, you know, old, and they didn't grow up with the tradition of of social media and the internet. And there's a lot of misunderstanding in terms of kind of how the internet can be used and how it can work. And so you've had. A lot of governments who have just reacted quickly by saying, you know, let's shut down social media or let's ban Twitter. It's it's a move that the Nigerian government made. And um, I think about sort of a dozen governments have, have at some point in the last two years sort of made moves to either, you know, ban Twitter or slow down the internet. And so you you have this, this is sort of a new sort of arena to fight on. And that has been something that has been especially a a big frustration amongst activists who have called for Twitter and social media companies to take more of a stance and to support them in their efforts. And, And that was something that I think, you know, Twitter Africa would have been tasked to do to ensure that a lot of these youth led movements have and continue to have social media as a tool in their efforts um, but you know it doesn't seem like something that elon musk cares too much about
0: i mean there are countries particularly across asia where facebook is seen as the entirety of the internet and the user base almost has no idea that there are other parts of the internet that are not facebook It's used for used for everything
1: yeah facebook and whatsapp in particular are really being used as tools to spread information and to organize. And that's something that Mark Zuckerberg has has really leaned into. Um, And I think that, you know, what Jack Dorsey previously wanted to do is he wanted to sort of catch up with Facebook. And that has certainly taken a backseat now with Elon Musk, who as part of his attempts to fight what he sees as the vague woke culture of Twitter and social media in general, doesn't seem to really have much of a plan for the future of the company and, and what the platform should be useful when it comes to, you know, fighting for freedoms across the world.
0: So this is the same week that Musk apparently killed the Twitter brand entirely. Maybe that's why he's trying to get rid of all those T-shirts and renamed it X. Have you got used to X yes? Are you Xing people? I,
1: I won't be saying X, I don't think. You know, I think we're indulging Musk's love for this branding that he was... Banned from using at PayPal, you know, when you bought a domain and you're paying for it every year and it's just sitting there, you kind of want to do something with it, and so it seems like he's 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 decided that you know I might as well completely uh, revamp a well-known household brand and and call it call it X uh, without you know really caring for all the many trademark infringements that you know they're certainly probably going to get sued for in the next uh, few weeks.
0: Well, as friend of the podcast and comedy writer Dan Mayer said, we're all laughing at this, but it works so well for the rebranding of Malcolm Tweed. (laughs) (laughs) And that's the end of this edition of The Bunker Global. Defoe, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. We'll see you back on The Bunker soon. Listeners, if you enjoyed the show, we'll be back next Friday with another Bunker Global. And of course, there's a brand new episode of The Bunker every day. Remember, you can get them all early, plus delightful new merchandise for backers all coming soon when you back us on Patreon. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.
1: The Bunker Global was written and presented by Andrew Harrison and Deepo Fallil The producer was Liam Tate The production assistant was Adam Wright And audio production was by me, Simon Williams The managing editor is Jacob Jarvis The group editor is Andrew Harrison With music by Kenny Dickinson And artwork by James Parrott The Bunker Global is a Podmasters production